Well, good morning. Welcome to Convergent Church. My name is Jameson. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the first time or the hundredth time, welcome. It's good to be gathered with the church, gathered in the presence of God and His Spirit, and I'm just very, very, very excited to preach this morning. I don't know why. Some mornings are just like that, so that's good. But today, we're going to be continuing uh, in our series uh, through the Gospel of John titled Walking with the Word as we take sort of a, a deep dive into the life of Jesus who we know is God's Word made flesh. Now, when I use the word authentic, what kinds of things come to mind? What pops into your head? Some of the things that pop into my head are authentic Chicago-style deep dish pizza. <laughs> authentic Cuban cigars. Authentic champagne from the hills of the Champagne region of France. The smell of authentic leather. If I asked you to describe an authentic person, how would you describe them? Perhaps you would describe them as honest or transparent, perhaps self-aware, not full of it or puffed up, and certainly not a fake person. One thing that we can be sure about in our day and age, the day of Photoshop and Snapchat filters, catfishing and identity theft, in a world of fake news, I'm sure most of us would say that the world needs more authentic people, do we not? I recently stumbled upon a YouTube channel called uh, Rami the Icon. Now, this young man, Rami, uh, he's a sneakerhead, which for those of you who don't know what that means, he collects sneakers. And he has a huge collection of sneakers. I saw some of your ears perk up. I saw Fred go, okay, he's talking about sneakers. <laughs> but he owns a shop that buys and sells and trades and appraises sneakers. And it's really interesting to watch Rami authenticate sneakers because handling so many pairs of authentic sneakers, Rami has gotten very good at spotting a pair of fakes. Within about 30 seconds of holding a real pair of vintage sneakers, he can tell whether or not they are real. Whether it's the weight of the shoes or the colors on the shoes, whether it's the stitching on the shoes or the way the tags are placed or several other factors, he can tell near instantaneously whether or not the sneakers that he's holding are real. And if you go and watch his channel, you're going to be heartbroken when you see people come into his shop with pairs of shoes that they spend one, two, maybe even $3,000 for that they believed were real. And Rami, unfortunately, has to tell them that they're fakes. You see their hearts break. Now, if in the world of sneakerheads and a dozen other places like pizza and cigars and champagne, if authenticity matters to mere men like Rami, how much more do we believe authenticity matters to Jesus? If something were not authentic, would you want someone to tell you or would you want them to leave you in your ignorance? 
If what you had was not authentic, would you like the truth, even though the truth may hurt you? Today, we're going to encounter a man who has a decision ahead of him. He has to decide whether or not he will choose to be an authentic person. And let's try and answer this question this morning, and it's this. How do I know my faith is authentic? How do I know my faith is authentic? I'd like to answer that question today by giving you three indicators of authentic faith. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. And we're going to begin reading in verse 43. And it says this. After the two days he had departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, when we last saw Jesus, he was in the region of Samaria, and he'd talked to the Samaritans about who he was. And we saw that they responded by believing in him in faith. But Jesus has just made a 40-mile journey from Samaria to Galilee, where he had spent that time testifying to these non-Jews about the kingdom of God. And we see their response earlier in this chapter. They said this. They said, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That region of the world had been reached by the woman at the well, which we spent, I think, almost three or four weeks looking at that encounter. She had taken the truth that she knew about Jesus, and she had spread it all over the countryside. Now, the last time Jesus was in Galilee, he had been severely rebuked in his hometown of Nazareth. And I think a bit of context can kind of help pull this encounter together for us. It can really open up this text for us. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 4, and we're going to read verses 24 through 29. It says this. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. (laughs) But the truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian." When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off a cliff. Jesus had previously angered these supposed faithful Jews, as he was wont to do, As he spoke the truth to them, and their response was to try and throw him off a cliff. Now, I could make many parallels to our current culture, but I'm not sure we're here today for that. But they respond with this deep vehemence, this deep anger towards the truth that Jesus gives them. And the reason they were so mad at Jesus was really threefold. First, Jesus declared himself as the Messiah. 
He had recently uh, listened to, or he had, had recently read the prophet Isaiah, and he was talking about how he was coming to heal the sick and set the prisoners free and give sight to the blind and unstopped to ears of the deaf. And so Jesus is telling them that I'm the Messiah. I am the person that the prophet of Isaiah has been speaking about, and I'm the person who's coming to bring deliverance to the Jews. And he accused these Galilean Jews as being unfaithful because they weren't listening to his words and they weren't accepting their promised deliverer. Furthermore, in that encounter in Luke, the last time Jesus was in Galilee, he accuses past generations of Jews, those in the generations of Elijah and Elisha, of being hard-hearted and thus not being sent prophets. In the generation of Elijah... Elijah was simply sent to an unknown widow in a region where there were virtually no Jews. And she was one of the only few that responded in faith. Thirdly, he also rebukes those in the time of Elijah, except for Naaman, who was actually a Syrian general who had come down with leprosy, who ultimately proved faithful and trusted God. And so we have these Samaritan non-Jews we have this Canaanite widow, and we have this Syrian general who's also a leper. And Jesus is basically saying, these people are what faithfulness looks like. Jesus basically shows up for Saturday church and says, look, all of y'all are unfaithful. Your daddies were unfaithful. Your mamas were unfaithful. And your 10th grandma was unfaithful. That's basically what he said. And so they stood up. And they took him to a hill, and they tried to kill him. But Jesus being God and us understanding that it was not yet his time to go to the cross, he slips away from them. Now, Jesus' goal in this encounter in Luke 4 and also the encounter that we're going to continue in in John 4 is to contrast these two responses to the truth of who Jesus is. The first response is that of the Samaritans, the non-Jews, and the second is that of the Jews or the Galileans. And Jesus is holding up these two responses to the truth, and he's saying one of these responses is authentic faith, and one of them is not. And this backdrop gives us a context to make sense of Jesus' encounter today in John 4. So Jesus shows up in Cana. The last time he was here, he had turned water into wine. <laughs> but today, there's a very different response of the Jews whom he encounters. These people are fawning over him. They're excited to see him. And they certainly aren't threatening to throw him off any cliffs today. Instead, there's this palpable anticipation for Jesus's arrival. Well, what changed? Well, these people at Cana had been partakers of Jesus' miraculous works. Some of them had been at the wedding where he turned water into wine and they tasted of the fruits of his miraculous power. Some had been at the Passover where they saw him speak with authority and cleanse the temple, driving out the money changers and those who were bringing sacrifices into the temple. And their attitude toward Jesus shifted because they were ultimately expecting him to produce a miracle like they had seen before. You might say, Pastor Jameson, what's wrong with a miracle? And I would say nothing's wrong with a miracle. God can 
and does do miracles every single day. Every single day, I get down on my knees and I pray that the next day I would wake up 40 pounds lighter. God's just not on board with that one yet. But God can and does do miracles. But here's the problem with this group of Jews who showed up to see Jesus today. They are only showing up to see Jesus perform a miracle. That's why they're there. The people who are showing up and gathering around Jesus this morning, we're not witnessing disciples of Christ. We're not witnessing faithful Christians. We're not even witnessing our faithful, faithful Jews with an authentic hope of the Messiah. What we're seeing are thrill seekers who've shown up to see something fanatical happen in their midst. And here's the first indicator of authentic faith. We say, I know my faith is authentic because I'm not merely curious about Jesus, but committed to Jesus. I'm not merely curious about Jesus, but I'm committed to Jesus. You may say, Pastor Jameson, what's wrong with being curious? And I would answer that by saying, nothing and everything. There's initially nothing wrong with being curious about Jesus. Many people come to faith in Christ because they're curious about who Jesus is. And we often preach to the church that the church should be peculiar people, that we should have a certain way about us. We should have a certain aroma around us that when people see us, they would want to be curious about Jesus, that they would come and see who the Messiah is. Now, the problem arises when my curiosity about who Jesus is stays mere curiosity and does not ultimately mature into a dedication and a commitment to Jesus and loving him and serving his kingdom. Raise your hand if you're a mother. Moms, I want you to think back on one of your childbirths, preferably not the most horrific one if you had a horrific one, but think back on one of your childbirths. Mothers, how terrifying for you would it be if your child ended up getting stuck in the birth canal? How t- some, some moms are laughing. They're like, yep, been there. But how terrifying would it be when a child gets stuck in the birth canal? You see, the birth canal has a very specific function. It's to facilitate birth. That's what it does. But a child isn't designed to live in the birth canal, are they? They're not. And what happens if a child ends up staying in a birth canal too long? There's serious consequences. Perhaps even death. And I would wager that most people come to Jesus through the birth canal of curiosity. That's certainly how I came to life in Jesus. But it can be ultimately devastating when those people never leave the birth canal of curiosity, but simply try to live there. Because there's no life there. How would you feel if you walked into a McDonald's, one that had a play area for kids, and you saw a 45-year-old man in the ball pit? How would you feel? You'd probably be pretty uncomfortable. 
You'd say there's something seriously wrong with that guy. God designed us not simply to stay curious, not simply to stay simple in our curiosity, but to move on into maturity of real, committed faith, living with Jesus. Now, what does being stuck in the birth canal of curiosity look like? I'd like to give you some examples. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. But I would also say that each of these that I'm getting ready to put forward to you, at one time in my faith walk, I was. So please understand that I'm not just preaching at you or against you. I'm also preaching against past iterations of, of Jameson. So being stuck in the birth canal of curiosity may look like following conservative circles, but never professing a real need for Jesus to deliver you from your sin. Perhaps following a certain ideology. It might look like championing what we might call liberal causes, issues of social justice, or advocating for the least of these without confessing a need for Jesus to personally redeem your life. It could look like quoting Bible verses but never truly embodying the truth that's found in them. I think for most of us, it most often looks like coming to church services, gathering with the church perhaps seeking what the church can provide, but never truly committing to living a life for Christ. That was me for so many years. Or coming to gather with the church simply to see if something exciting will happen this week, or how great the pastor's sermon is, or how awesome worship is. There's many things and if we contrast the Samaritan villagers who desired for Jesus to stay with them and teach them and ultimately confessed him as Savior, who truly believed in him with that of the Jews, who spent far more time with Jesus and around Jesus, understanding the culture that Jesus was trying to build, hearing Jesus speak about himself and yet never shifted from curiosity to true hope in him never simply stopped following the crowd, but actually began to follow Jesus in himself for who he is. We see that the Samaritans seemed to be exhibiting authentic faith while the Jews did not. My friends, if our curiosity is not simply, if our curiosity does not become authentic faith grounded in who Christ is and what he's done to save us from our sins, we will be much like children stuck in a birth canal. Let's continue reading. Continuing in verse 46. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come to, from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So in Cana, Jesus encounters a Jewish man whose son is sick. His son is dying in Capernaum, which is about 25 miles away from Cana. And when he heard that Jesus had come into this region, he made the journey to go and see Jesus. Now, this is about a two-day journey from Capernaum to Cana. And he tells Jesus that his son is on the brink of death's door, and if Jesus doesn't come and miraculously heal him, his son will surely die. 
And as we're reading this text, we must understand that this is exactly what the crowd came to witness. This is exactly what these thrill seekers wanted to see. They wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle. I'm convinced, I am convinced that if Jesus started walking towards Capernaum, they would have began to follow him. And as I envision this scene, I can almost feel this palpable excitement of the Jews who are about to get exactly what they wanted. But before Jesus begins to deal with the request of this desperate father, he ultimately turns to the crowd. And that word in our text, when Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, it should really be read, unless you people, addressing the crowd, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is challenging the authenticity of their faith. Jesus is telling them, On a whole, all of you only came to see a show, not to receive true eternal life. You came to see something miraculous. How do I know my faith is authentic? Indicator number two, I know my faith is authentic because I don't follow my feelings, but follow the truth. I do not follow my feelings, but I follow the truth. Authentic faith is always built on the solid ground of the knowledge of who Jesus is, not just emotional and spiritual experiences. Always on the ground of who Jesus is. Authentic faith requires that we ultimately believe fundamental truths about who Jesus is and what he has done. And we might ask, what are those truths? Well, I would say authentic faith roots itself in Scripture. It roots itself from the first page to the last, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, it believes everything that the Father has said about himself. It believes everything that Jesus has said about himself. It believes everything that the Holy Spirit has said about the Father and the Son. And it ultimately holds to the truth of the Bible. But that's a lot. That's a lot. So let's just look at the truths that Jesus has said about himself thus far in the book of John. These are the things that have been said about Jesus just in the first four chapters of the book of John. In John 1.1, he is the word of God made flesh. In John 1.29, he is the lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. In John 1.34, he's the son of God. In 138, he's the rabbi who teaches people God's word. In 141, he's the Messiah, the chosen and obedient fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. In 149, he's the true king of Israel, the real king of the Jews. In 151, he is the son of man. The one who God said would hold lasting dominion, lasting kinship, lasting sovereignty over every nation on the face of the earth. In 442, he's the savior of the world whose life, death, and resurrection would bring salvation to all peoples. In just four chapters, We see great fundamental truths about who Jesus is, not including what else the Bible says about Jesus. Do you know 
that it is entirely possible to profess to be a Christian and yet have your belief in Jesus divorced from who Jesus actually is? Do you know that that's possible? To profess to be a Christian, which means in Christ, rooted in Christ, and yet not engage your faith in your knowledge and your belief, but simply follow what you feel about Christ. My friends, this was me for the better part of the first six years of my journey towards authentic faith. I was taught to ride one emotional, spiritual high. One spiritual experience. One moment of impassioned, tearful moment of repentance to the next. To me, Jesus was this, he was a miracle worker. He was this God of extravagant love. He was a, he was a healer of the broken. He was, a, he was a friend to all who would forgive every sin. And yes, Jesus is those things. But I did not understand what else he was because I was not rooted in the truth. I didn't understand that this Savior who loved me and gave his life for me and died for me was also a king over me. He was a Lord over me who desired my daily obedience to the things who he says that I should do. I didn't realize that he was a rabbi to me, a master and a teacher to me who, who wanted me to study him in his word and wanted me to fall at his feet in prayer I didn't realize that he was the word made flesh who wanted to sanctify the sinful parts of me and drive them out so that I would look more like him. I didn't realize my savior was also my master who wanted me to surrender all of my life to him. Who wanted me to surrender my desires and my plans and my goals and my emotions. That Jesus didn't want me to simply be excited about him. He wanted me to be devoted to him. And what he stood for. And who he was. Jesus wasn't calling me to make emotional sacrifices. Jesus was calling me to a daily obedience to him. In worship services, I would sing about his love, much like I do now. I love to raise my hands. I love to sing loudly. I would sing in passion songs. I would run around the church. I would hoop and I would holler. I would prophesy over people's lives, pridefully somehow believing that I knew what God was going to do. I would sing louder when people were spinning in circles and chanting and falling. And to my shame, when I left Sunday services, I would ultimately live like someone who didn't even know who Jesus was. That was me. 
That's where that guy in the back found me. Thanks, buddy. I worshipped a version of Jesus that was crafted around my emotions. It was a version of Jesus that was formed around what I felt and not the truth that I should have known. And depending on any given day how I felt about God and what he was doing in my life or what kind of spiritual experience I had, this false Jesus that I followed could take on any number of characteristics. If my life was falling apart, Jesus did not love me. If everything was good, Jesus was the best. If I came and I grabbed my guitar and I sang on a Sunday morning and everyone just stood there like this, I would say, God, why have you forsaken me? But if you raise your hands and hoop and holler, I would say, yes, Jesus, you must be here. It was awful. Because I was not grounded in truth, I believed every new teaching that came across my desk. And I would follow these new thoughts that did not follow the truth of God's word. And when I was presented to these new things, I would chase them, never stopping to examine the true authenticity of my faith and my trust in Christ. My faith in Christ lacked a solidity that true, authentic Christians have. I was like chaff that was blown every way by the wind. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says this to this church who's being blown about by spiritual experiences. He says this, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul says as Christians, examining ourselves is good. To bring ourselves to God's word, to bring ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And to ask, is my faith authentic? Do I truly believe what I say I believe or am I simply following my emotions? Listen, church, I know I'm being hard on you. But if you are living a life professing to be a Christian and you never encounter a moment where you have to test the authenticity of your faith, that's scary. Because true Christians doubt. True Christians do struggle with their faith. But we turn to welcoming that testing. How many of you like jewelry? My wife really likes jewelry. She's upstairs, so I can say that. Do you know a simple way to test whether or not your gold jewelry is actually gold jewelry? If you take your gold jewelry and you put it in a glass of water and it sinks to the bottom, it's true gold. If it floats at the top, it's likely some other alloy, perhaps nickel or bronze or something else. It's not heavy enough to sink to the bottom. Gold is heavy compared to something that's gold-plated. True gold has a weight to it. It stands up to scrutiny and testing. When it's examined, it's proven to be authentic. Authentic faith sinks deep into the truth of Christ. 
The anchor of authentic faith is latched onto who Jesus is and what he has done, not simply how I feel in the moment. Those with authentic faith do not show up to see something miraculous. Those with authentic faith show up because something miraculous has already been done in their lives. Are you hearing me? And when we contrast again the Samaritans who wanted to learn the truth of Jesus, who rooted their faith into the bedrock of Jesus' words that he said about himself, to the Jews who only responded when Jesus performed miracles and often responded in these emotional extremes, either lavishing their love upon him or in other moments wanting to throw him from the cliffs. We see the Samaritans again come out ahead. Authentic faith is being grounded in truth, not living on a string of emotional experiences hopping on spiritual bandwagons, my friends. So finally, let's address this plea of this desperate father. In verse 49, he says this, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, before we move into this last point, I want you to think about this picture that is before us. This father has traveled 25 miles to come and see Jesus. That doesn't seem like much to us. But in that day, it was at least a two days journey over relatively rugged terrain. He traveled this far because he believed that only Jesus could reverse whatever was going on in his son's life. He knows that if Jesus does not agree to come with him to Capernaum, this 25-mile journey, his son is surely doomed. You can actually hear the desperation in his voice when he says, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's saying, Jesus, if you don't perform a miracle, if you don't do what I showed up for you to do, my child whom I love is not going to make it. And I'm wondering if any of you have been in a situation like this before. A situation that is so desperate, so heart-wrenching, that you know that if God doesn't show up, that if God doesn't move, if God doesn't intervene in some miraculous way, the ending is going to be tragic. Have you ever been there? I think most of us have been there. Maybe once or twice in our lives. Now, most of us would expect Jesus to respond to this desperate father's Plea by saying, yes, friend, show me the way. Let's go heal your boy. I'll grab my cloak. Let's get on the road. But no, that's not how Jesus responds today. But instead, in verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now, we have the gift of hindsight, we have the gift of reading back 2,000 years and saying, oh, yeah, it says right there, his son will live. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of that father on that day. On that day, you've traveled 25 miles for this man to come and heal your son. Your child is dying. When you left Capernaum two days ago, you kissed your wife goodbye. You kissed your other children you kissed your dying son, which perhaps might have been the last time, and you told them, you promised them, you were going to go get help. Your wife is probably right now at your dying son's side, praying to God for another hour or another minute 
of this child's life. There's probably servants at the edge of your property, scouring the horizon, looking to see when you and Jesus are coming to Capernaum. But instead of Jesus saying, yes, I'm going to come with you, he said, you turn around and go home. On a promise. You turn around and start the journey home because I said your son will live. Now, I know how I would respond. I would say, Jesus, you don't know Chelsea. That's what I would say. I said, Jesus, when I walk through that door, without you by my side, we're going to have a dead son and a dead dad. That's how I would respond. So why does Jesus respond this way? He responds this way because he wants to see if this father's faith is going to sink or float. Is his faith heavy like gold or is it light like nickel? Is he like his fellow Jews who only respond to miracles or is he like the non-Jews, the Samaritans, who respond in faith to the word of God. Is he fake or is he authentic? That's what Jesus is getting at. Indicator number three. I know my faith is authentic because I depend on Christ, not what I can see today. I know my faith is authentic because I depend on Christ, not on what I see today. The author of Hebrews so famously wrote, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Authentic faith is not only committed to Christ, it's not only grounded in his truth, but authentic faith is an active faith. It's a living faith. It's a moving faith. An authentic faith moves based on what God has said, based on what Jesus has told me, not only what my eyes can see. Are you listening? Do you understand? Authentic faith does not say, I will wait to exercise my faith once I can make sense of the situation. Authentic faith says... God has said, therefore I will do. That's what authentic faith is. Authentic faith is assured of the promises of God, not because it's seen the promises fulfilled, but because it trusts in the one who promises. That's what authentic faith is. Authentic faith is trusting what Jesus says he will do and living as if it is true. And I'm preaching to my own soul because I fail at this so often. Authentic faith is trusting what Jesus says he will do and living as if it's true. And what does authentic faith look like? Well, we have many, many testimonies, many pictures of what this looks like in the Bible. But Jesus actually hits on a few back in Luke 4. Jesus said in Luke 4 that authentic faith looks like a widow who was visited by a prophet during a famine. Now this particular widow, all she had left was enough food to make two cakes, two small cakes to feed her and her son. And she said, son, we're going to eat and then we're going to die because there's no more food. There's nothing coming. There's no crops coming in. No one's coming to save us. We have enough for one final meal. 
And the prophet Elijah shows up to her door. And he says, God told me to come to you. And he says, what I want you to do is before you make yourself food, before you make food for your son, I want you to make food for me and feed me first. And God promises that if you'll do what he says, then he will make sure that you and your son survive this famine. Are you kidding me? Authentic faith looks like feeding the prophet, trusting what God says, and leaning on his promises. In Luke 4, Jesus said in that same text that it looks like a leprous Syrian general named Naaman who believed that only God could heal him. He tried everything, and he knew that only the Hebrew God was the one who could heal. And he comes to the prophet Elijah at the edge of the river Jordan. And he's coming, he's looking for a miracle, and Elijah says, I'm not going to lay my hands on you. I'm not going to perform a miracle. What I want you to do is I want you to strip off your clothes, and I want you to go bathe in the river Jordan. By the way, it stinks and it's disgusting. Have fun. <laughs> That's what he says. Authentic faith looks like stripping off your clothes and bathing in the river because that's what God said to do. That's what it looks like. Authentic faith looks like Abraham. You have only one son and the promise that I've given you rests on this one son. I want you to take him up to a mountain. I want you to lay him on the altar. I want you to strap him down and I want you to raise the knife above his head and I want you to bring it down as hard as you can. Authentic faith looks like raising the knife knowing that even if your child dies, God can raise him back to life. That was Abraham's testimony. Authentic faith looks like Peter. I know the storm's scary. I know the water's rough, but I'm out here on the water, and I want you to step out of the boat, and I want you to come to me. Authentic faith looks like getting out of the boat and taking that step. Confidence is not going to be your last, but it might be. And going to Jesus where he says he wants you to go. And in this text, authentic faith looks like a desperate father who knows that Jesus is the only answer turning around and heading home because Jesus promised. The text tells us that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. My friends, if our trust in Jesus, if our faith in who he is and what he's done and what he's accomplishing in the world is not moving us outside of what is comfortable to us, if it's not moving us outside of what makes sense to us, if it's not moving us outside of how we see our particular future going, I'm not sure that we actually have authentic faith. And that's to my own soul. If what we believe about Jesus can fill textbooks and can be sung in a thousand songs, but it doesn't convict me to actually invite risk into my life, to welcome sacrifices for the kingdom and promote in my life a deep dependence on Christ and on his strength every day for what I need, then maybe I'm not authentic. Maybe. Verse 51, as he was going, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. 
The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. When I think about this story and how this father turned in faith based on the promise that Jesus gave him, I can see a version of the story where the father refused to go back home. Where the father said, no, Jesus, you must come, Jesus. You must conform to my ideas, Jesus. You must follow my expectations, Jesus. You must come and touch him. You must perform the miracle, Jesus. And I can see in that moment Jesus having to say, because you lacked faith in my words, your son is no more. It's a possible outcome. In James 2, verse 26, James said, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Authentic faith will believe even when the promise is yet far off. Authentic faith will take the walk even when we're not completely sure what's on the other end. Authentic faith will respond with trust in what God has said about himself and what he will do and what he will bring about in his word for his people. My friends, it's, it's always accompanied by some action or else it's not faith. And when God asks us to take an action that does not make sense, I'm asking you, will the people of Convergent Church be the kind of people who exhibit an active and obedient faith that depends on Christ, not on what we can see? When God says, forgive that person that wronged you, but your heart and soul says, no, they haven't repented, they haven't asked for my forgiveness, they haven't earned my forgiveness. Will you lean on God's word that says forgive and you'll be forgiven? When God says be generous, and I'm not talking to the church, I'm talking about in your life. When God says be generous, but you look around at your family and you say, God, but we're struggling. But God, we often don't have enough. Can you trust God enough to provide for your needs to bring a family to, or to bring a meal to someone who's sick? Or to spend the time to fix someone's tire? Or to give of your resources so that someone else might have? When God says, tell them about me. When the Holy Spirit comes to you in that moment when you're at your work and you're sitting with your coworker, or you're at the dinner table with your family, or you're sitting with a family member on their deathbed and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you feel that compulsion to tell them about Jesus, will you say, I will? Or will we come up with all the reasons why we can't? Will we say they've never responded before, God? They've hated you their whole life, God. I've talked to you about them before and they persecuted me, God. Will you exhibit an act of faith that listens to what God is saying? 
When God says, be on mission for me. When God says, give your life over to me. Live for me. Will you go? Or will you say, Lord, I don't know enough? Will you say, Lord, I'm unqualified? Will you say, Lord, I don't have the time? Lord, I don't have the resources. As if he cannot provide all of those things. What will we do? When Jesus tells you to take your walk, how long will you wait to get going? How long will you wait? And I don't know what Jesus is calling you to personally. I don't know what he's asking you to do. We don't have the benefit of Jesus standing in front of us and telling us exactly what to do. But I do know that he's called every single one of us in this room to take up our cross and follow him. And it looks different for each one of us. And I believe that if we can do that as committed believers who are grounded not in just what we feel, but are grounded in the truth of God and what he has said, ready to believe God's word, not just what we can see or what makes sense to us, I am deeply confident that he will change our lives. And not only our lives, but our coworkers and our neighbors and our families. Look at the response. This man came home, his son was well, and he told his family, he said, the person who healed him was Jesus. I remember the moment when Jesus said you were alive and here you are alive. And what's the response? His whole family believed. His entire household believed. And if Jesus can do that 2,000 years ago on a simple promise, what can he do now? Can he not do the same things now? Will he not change our lives? Will he not reach our neighbors? Will he not reach the schools? Will he not change our world? Because here's a promise that we can stand on. For 2,000 years, the authentic faith of Christians has been changing the world. For 2,000 years. Dan talked about it last week. It started with 120 disciples, and it has blossomed to over 2 billion. Trillion? Trillion. 2 trillion. <laughs> so. But it's blossomed because authentic faith was at work. And so I guess the way I'm going to end this is by saying that often in our lives we ask the question, I've probably asked it a hundred times, would I be willing to die for Jesus? And often in my heart there is this resounding yes, I would die for Jesus. If someone put a gun to my head, I would take the bullet and I would not renounce him. But here's the reality, for most of us, Jesus is not going to ask you to die for him. But he's asking you to live for him, which is much harder. I can say I will die for my wife if the opportunity arises, but it's so much harder to say every single day I'm going to live for the good of Chelsea. And so I'm asking you today, will you be authentic? Will you exercise your faith? Will you come to Jesus for who Jesus is? And will you choose to live for him in a deeper way? Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. Lord, we thank you. 
God, we know that we love because you first loved us. And Lord, you've shown us what obedience looks like. And Lord, we confess and we repent that daily we fall short of obedience. But Lord, here's the good news that our heart clings to. That you are not a God who is angry at us. Lord, you are not a God who is frustrated with us. Lord, you are not a God who is seeking to get rid of us, even though we often fail and don't rise to the occasion. No, you are a God who tenderly undergirds us and cares for us. And so, Lord, would you care for us? Lord, would you care for us even as you convict our hearts to live for you? Lord, would you show us the ways in which we have lived a life that is perhaps not committed to you? And show us what it looks like to commit our lives to you. Lord, if there's areas in our lives where we've been following our emotions and we're not following the truth of your word, Lord, would you reveal that to us by the power of your spirit? Lord, that we would not be people who are tossed to and fro by what we feel, but that we would be a church who is anchored deeply in what we know that we would trust you in your word. And Lord, that all of us, that we would forsake dependence on what we can see. But instead, with the eyes of faith, Lord, we would see what you're doing. Lord, that you would divinely open our eyes to the possibilities that could happen, Lord, when we follow you, Lord, when we take our walk of faith. Lord, would you just give us a vision for that? Would you give us a vision of what could happen in our personal lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our city? But if we chose to just take you at your word, Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you to show us. Lord, open our eyes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.